Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today, I am joined by a man who I can pronounce his name. Now, people who listen to this podcast know that I butcher everybody's name, but I'm delighted to be able to pronounce this man's name today. Fla. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Flanagan. So, uh, Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me in. Commonly known as Fla in Ireland, would that be right? Flano generally, yeah. Flano. In our our hometown in Westmead would be Fla, probably. All right, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> maybe Flano is, is a bit more posh. <laughs> it's it's actually well, so the, the, the Flanagan side of the family is Mayo, west of Ireland, so it was all it was all Flano down there. Um but yeah, so that's 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 where that drags out of <laughs> Where where are you from originally, Alan? So I was I was born in in Dublin, but I I grew up abroad. I grew up in Hong Kong. Um, oh really? And then I, I, yeah, my dad was a pilot, and then I he was in the Air Corps, the Irish Air Corps, and then went into civil afterwards. And then we we ended up in Hong Kong. So I grew up in Hong Kong, went to primary school, um, was nearly about to start secondary school there, and then my parents decided actually we'll we'll kick the lads back back to back to Ireland to for secondary school. So came back then. Yeah. And so both your parents yeah, were Irish and went to went to Hong Kong. Yes, yeah, yeah. They they stayed there up until 2015, um, and then retired and came back came back up. But uh, yeah, so it was it was it was a good it was ah, look it was a fantastic place to grow up and would have gone back there pretty much every year every or twice a year sometimes. It's a great place. It's troubled obviously now. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's fantastic though. We went um, we went last Easter in 2019 for the first time ever from here mm. in Perth in Western Australia. And I have to say, I actually didn't like it. I, I was, it was, it was too overwhelming for me. It was too busy. So this is the thing. Yeah. I actually didn't grow up in the city. I get, and when, I think when you go to Hong Kong as a tourist, like the, the kind of postcard picture of Hong Kong, you know, the, the, the really kind of built up intense area, like on, 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 on the island side and, you know, and, and, and on the mainland side, but that's, that's only kind of really where people tend to gravitate to. But actually, there is, believe it or not, countryside in Hong Kong. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So I grew up. I grew up uh, about forty minutes outside of the city, and you know, in none of that kind of built-up craziness at all. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely appreciate that the the, the built-up part of Hong Kong can be pretty overwhelming. Neon yeah, signs was, hanging everywhere, and yeah, people. It was, it was, yeah, it was yeah. too much for me. And so, Perth, for people who don't know, Perth in Western Australia is quite quite relaxed. It's quite more like a country town. So. Yeah. So yeah, it was a bit too much for us. We've we've been to Singapore a lot. Uh, it's only a five-hour mm. flight, and Hong Kong's about seven and a half hours. In, yeah. saying, in saying that, to your point about countryside, the part we did really like about Hong Kong is when we went out to the Big Buddha. Yes, Atlanta. Yeah, that was absolutely fantastic. I that yeah. that was the best day I had. It was so nice. Um, yeah, you got the, the big cable, cable car. Cable up. car yeah. yeah, I was shitting on the cable car. To be honest with you, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I just was. I was like, I don't know why I'm shitting it, but I'm shitting it. Uh, and then there was these Russian girls in the in the thing, Russian women, and they were talking. I was like, oh, this is like a James Bond movie. This is gonna fall or something's gonna. Happen. No, that's it. Yeah, but yeah, it was yeah. absolutely fantastic out there. And it was it was really nice to go and see that. See that yeah, movie. the big boat is so, lovely. Yeah, yeah, it was really yeah. Nice. that was that was the best day of the whole thing. Yeah, you get a bit of respite from the city. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I was so in Perth actually when I was twelve on a oh, flight. Right. Well, my dad did it. My dad used to fly to Perth, and so one trip. This is pre nine eleven when he used to be able to just stick someone in the spare seat in the cockpit. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> back. So yeah, I did. I did. I was there when I was uh, twelve. We did a thirteen. We did a. We went out to Fremantle Prison. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did a tour of that, and yeah, I re- yeah, good, good memories of Perth, albeit distant memories now. I brought my dad down to Fremantle Prison just a few months ago. He was there for the first time and brought him down for the tour. It's kind of where we bring all the tourists, but um, it's a yeah. fantastic tour. I think I've been on about seven or eight times. I love it. So it's, uh, it's a good tour, yeah. Yeah, and you always get different people like doing the tour, so it's pretty good. So, yeah. so Alan, the reason we had you on today was actually to talk about your recent publication in um, the Journal of Nutrients, which mm-hmm. is um, titled, because it's part of a special edition on this area, and we've had a few people on before about this area of chronic nutrition sort of timing and food and, and the title of your paper is uh, dietary patterns of nurses on rotational shifts are marked by redistribution of energy into the night shift now this must be a good yes. paper because it has a long title this is my, <laughs> my my theory is that the longer the title and the more words the better it is because i've got the some better. jargon titles as well uh, so, we, we actually there was a lot of back and forth over the title <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if uh, someone had just come up with a paper one day that goes like Food makes you fat. Uh, food makes right, you skin. Yeah. Like just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just yeah, three words. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, Alan, um, this is part of a series of papers around your PhD. Is that correct? Well, that was so that actual publication was from my MSc um, dissertation. Essentially, okay. that was my MSc dissertation that we then decided uh, to to turn into a paper and and, and submit for publication. Um, but it's it's fits under the umbrella certainly of my PhD. So I kind of, I went straight from my MSc into a chrononutrition PhD, yeah. um, where broadly speaking, um, although it's not necessarily shift work per se that we're looking at, we are looking at um, the effects of the behavioral cycle, um, so sleep wake meal timing versus circadian rhythms, um, and and whether your response to food intake at different times of day is more driven by the circadian cycle or your behavioral cycles. So we, we did a, a forced jet lag uh, study, a simulated kind of mock jet lag study at the, at the sleep lab at the University of Surrey last year where we used a, a five-hour delay. So equivalent to traveling from, say, London or Dublin to Chicago or New York, that, that yeah, type yeah. of... So westward travel about a five-hour delay. Um, so the actual publication itself in Nutrients was was my MSc dissertation. But yes, it kind of flows on really and 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 fits under the umbrella of my actual PhD research currently, which is which is chrononutrition broadly speaking. So, so what's your background, Alan? Then before your master's, what did you sort of study undergrad? What's your interest? So my background, not unlike yourself, is somewhat of a meander. Um, so I originally, uh, I started out with a humanities degree, which was my interest in school. I did English and history in college. Um, originally thought I wanted to do a master's in history and kind of go that route academically. Um, but career-wise, kind of was thinking, um, I wasn't really sure where that would lead. So I, after that, I went to the King's Inns in Dublin um, and did a law degree got called to the bar in October 2009 and I practiced as a barrister in Dublin for the guts of 10 years. Um, my interest in nutrition was always there, kind of in, you know, uh, as more of a hobby interest, uh, very much related to my interest in sport. Um, 
But as I started getting more interested in it, I, I was reading research a bit more, trying to read research. And obviously with no scientific background, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I, I wanted to do some formal education with it. And I, through some good advice, found the Nutritional Medicine MSc at Surrey. Um, and that MSc program is modular. So it, it fit. I was able to stay working and, and do the MSc over two years. Um, and as I went through that MSc, I just became more enamored with the idea of, of getting into research. Um, I, I knew I had a big interest in kind of chronos side of things and circadian rhythm side of things and how that might relate to, to kind of diet and health and eventually when i finished my my msc um this grant application came through the university had a, a grant in a joint grant with the university of aberdeen and um i got i got offered the, the the phd position on the project and that was the fork in the road and i i jumped at, at that opportunity so uh, that was it i, I transitioned out of law December 2018 um, and started started full-time on this program January of last year. Mm, at the University of Surrey, which is in England. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. so I moved over. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so you started off doing history in English and then you switched to yeah. law. Is that right? So you didn't finish, you didn't yeah. finish that degree. You switched over and, and actually majored in law and became a barrister. No, no, I, I did. I did the, I finished my actual degree. My undergrad degree is in history and English. And then afterwards, if you if you do law as an undergrad, you can go straight to the King's Inns and do the one year barrister degree course. Yeah. But if you if you don't, but you have a, say a humanities uh, degree, you can do the same process, but you do three years instead. So it's like doing a law degree essentially yeah, yeah, after yeah. you do two two years of a of a of a diploma, and then you do the one year degree course. So so that's what I did. I did I did my undergrad first and graduated from UCD and history and English, and then then went and did law. And then started working, and then did my MSc while I was still at the bar, and then and then left to do the PhD. So it's been a it's been an interesting education route. Yeah, I think it's actually it's quite fascinating. Some of the some of the best scientists I know, and this is no disrespect to people who go through and just do their undergrad and do a PhD and and become scientists, but some of the the more interesting scientists who think a bit more differently are people I think who have these meandering careers right. and then ended up doing a, you know, a PhD later. I think it's, they tend to be just a bit more interesting, but that could be just my bias. Cause that's what I did. So I get quite fascinated about yeah. the pathways into it. But um, one of the things I wanted to yeah. ask you, cause my, my wife is Australian and she wonders why us Irish people are so kind of enamored with history. Uh, I actually yeah. was a massive history buff at school as well. I still like history. I talk yeah. about history, listen to history podcasts, watch documentaries. Um, why, why is it that, why do you think maybe so many Irish people, number one, are interested in history, number two, are pretty good at it, and, and a fair amount of people yeah. who study it more? And, and you do, you have some, some you know, phenomenal, like academic historians, phenomenal academic historians are, are Irish and um, particularly military historians. I think it's just ingrained in our, like I think to understand being Irish is inherently to understand Irish history. And you, you, you can't really contextualize, particularly now as, as a country, we've kind of grown up a bit and we're, we're able to celebrate a bit more of the kind of, you know, diversity in our, in our, in our history and, and Irish history, there's nothing linear about it. There's nothing straightforward about it. It's all shades of gray and complexity. Um, and I, I think that, I think that to kind of have that understand, particularly as a country that only became independent in, in 1922, you know, it's, it's different to a country like America where you kind of 
invent your own history from 1776 onwards and, and that's your narrative yeah. whereas you know our history is very much defined as 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 in a way not having control of our own destiny and and i think you know to yeah i think that's that's why we're drawn to it maybe is is to try and kind of understand and put some context on where we are as a kind of as an independent country and as a as as a country with our own kind of national psyche and way of kind of maybe that's why we're drawn to it um but yeah it's an interesting question i'm i'm not sure that's my that's my personal kind of take um we we become interested in it because maybe we're we're trying to kind of like figure out you know how we got here yeah and i think it's interesting as well that like even as kids as 12 13 14 year olds would be like you know and i i grew up in a working class environment it wasn't like we were sitting around in belvedere college you know having drinking tea mm-hmm. and, and you know debating questions but even on the sort of walking to school or kicking a football people would argue about stuff about history that never happened. Right. Yeah, but if you look at this, this, this happened. Yeah, and people yeah. would have all these strange facts that would come out, and you're like, "What? Yeah, well, right. if you look at those houses out the road that were, you know, built in X Y Z suburb, they were actually the black and tans for the English that came in. Right. That, that yes. family married this family, and then so you're telling me that that guy across the road, his granddad was a black and tan. Yeah, didn't you know? Right. That? Yeah. Then, oh, black, well, yeah, but they came in. They were Portuguese sailors in the 1800s. Like what? Like yeah, 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 be, yeah. You know, just all yeah. over your your history. So. It is absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. pretty bizarre. But um, yeah, how do you think, Alan? The how do you think English and history, studying those subjects and even law, have helped you transition to a scientist? So, yeah, I I, I was actually having this chat with a friend of mine recently, and it's 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 not it's something that I've joined the dots in maybe in hindsight. Um, what one one thing that I think particularly about about law is from a scientific perspective, um, law and science are really not that different. On paper, they look completely different, but if you if you think about it from the level of epistemology, you know both of them. You start with a question that has to be tried, or in the scientific sense, tested. You have a, a threshold that that has to be met in order to deem that that question has been has been answered or or proven. You you set standards for that for that proof that have to be met. Um, it's just in law that might be beyond a reasonable doubt in a murder trial or on the balance of probabilities in a in a breach of contract case. Whereas in science, it's a, a p value and a power calculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so they're the same in principle. They've just manifest in different ways. So science just tries to make its quantum of proof more objective by the use of statistics, whereas in law, we're inherently relying on, you know, putting someone before a jury of their peers or uh, a body of judges or a single judge acting alone. And, and um, in principle, they're similar. But what, what, what I think now in, in hindsight is that in law, it's, it's not enough to simply say, here's my evidence, right? You have to prove your evidence. So it's, and one of the last, the, the last kind of big, big case that I did before I left was a, a kind of um, a boundary dispute in, a, in, in the high court. And we, we, we spent six days arguing over where a map from 1976 came from. It was drawn by an engineer, but the engineer was dead. So we, we didn't know whether he based it off ordnance survey or whether he just drew it himself or whether it came off an aerial photograph but we needed to be able to prove this. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just about saying, here's my evidence. You have to show where your evidence comes from. And that means you're looking behind just what's on paper. And 
my approach to, to science right the way through my, my MSc in hindsight has very much been that. It's not just, oh, this paper found X. I'm always interested in, well, how did they find that? And, and, and can, is the veracity of this, um, you know, does it stand up to scrutiny? And so my interest has always been almost in the, in the behind workings at the kind of like epistemological level and, and at the level of methodology and, and very much interested in not just knowing what the answer is, but how the answer came to be arrived at in the first place. So I, I think that has been the most helpful, I suppose, principle that, that, that was kind of bet into me as a lawyer that actually is very transferable to going into science. That, that, that understanding maybe of, of really what evidence actually is, what, what proof is. Um, and I think in, in science, people can be conditioned, particularly if they've only been into science, into thinking of things like proof and causation in very rigid ways. Whereas in a legal sense, you see proof as a continuum. It depends on the question being asked, you know. Oh, yeah. um, and people, particularly in the biomedical science realm, can become very kind of adherent to the, the hierarchy of evidence and, and as if that's proof but it's not proof you know it's just because a study is an rct doesn't mean it's inherently better than a prospective cohort study um but people fall into that way of thinking so i think i've always been a bit more in hindsight i've been a bit more dynamic with my way of thinking about concepts of proof and evidence and, and also very focused on not just what your evidence is but how you arrived at that point yeah yeah that's interesting yeah, because uh, funny enough, on the last few months of my PhD, I was actually a juror, and uh, I sat there. Where are for, you? Yeah, so I sat there for ten days, and I was actually looking at it from a kind of a from because I was quite I was quite irate that I was called for jury duty in the last few months. <laughs> I was like, I don't fucking need I can this imagine. At the moment. I, I just, I just, I just don't need this fucking heart attack at the moment. And uh, what kind know, of trial? A, a drug dealer, you know. But okay. Obviously, obviously, he was innocent, so it was it was quite interesting. So. He was a drug dealer and a notebook that was presented <laughs> had all these names in it. But the key for the names, like the code. So if, you know, if he was calling somebody Diamond in the back page of his notebook, he had Diamond equals John from Sydney. So it's like, and John's phone number. So like, it was like basic things. Like if you're going to have a code that you use in your book, Maybe have it in a separate yeah, book. Maybe, maybe <laughs> so have the code book. Yeah. So I was thinking about ethics, you know, and about decoupling the name from the subject. I was laughing. I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about, like, yeah, there was lots of things to laugh about, to be honest with you. Um, I was thinking about then when the, when the trial was going on about, you know, the, the evidence, like they were kind of stating something that this happened, you know, the, the prosecution, like a, nearly like a hypothesis, and then the prosecution mm. was systematically working through a number of aims to prove that, a bit like a scientific. Yeah theory as yeah. well but then it was up to the defense then to defend the position that wasn't true so i was getting these kind mm -hmm. of you know these parallels about yeah and i actually started thinking about and i was looking back to it because i found out and i haven't been able to find really good solid like evidence about this in terms of like peer review but it seems to me that whilst the scientific method was probably originated in you know in philosophy and in you know mm -hmm. sort of like socrates and plato there's also evidence that was in um in, in Celtic culture around Druids, that Druids would actually come and meet in a forest basically and, and, and try to replicate, you know, um, if they said like this, this leaf was good for, this oak leaf was, you know, great for like curing, I don't know, a cold sore or something like that, would have to go and replicate that, um, like a kind of a peer review. And then so, and then obviously it didn't, peer review didn't really happen then it's sort of in our modern times, the Royal Society mm. in the 1700s. But 
it was really interesting just looking at that about the family yeah. work and proving things and I was and I was looking at that and then also I actually started thinking about peer review because you know no disrespect to my jurors but there was a lot of people in that jury room that if I was getting tried by them I'd be worried yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like there was some there was yeah. some basic basic concepts right. in life not about the trial yeah. but just basic concepts yeah. in life that just weren't there and I was thinking you're getting you getting like you know tried by a jury of your peers I don't know, man. If is this, no. this is my peers, I want to select my peers. And then I was thinking right. about when you do put in an article for peer review, when you're trying to get published, it's like, how do you know these people are your peers? So like I'm classically right. a sleep scientist, chronobiologist, but I publish a lot in sport, but I might get an exercise physiologist reviewing my work. How do I know right. I fundamentally know that what my work is? Right. I, I, I agree with that completely. One of the things that, because I kind of like thinking about science from a, from a kind of epistemological standpoint, I, one of the conversations I've been quite drawn to over the last year has been, a year, two years now, has been um, nutrition science as a field has been taking a bashing, not, not just in the lay kind of populist press, but actually even in the academic literature. And you've had papers published, you know, just like, completely rubbishing or, or attempting to rubbish, for example, dietary assessment methods in epidemiology, but, you know, the papers published by an exercise physiologist or, or so they're, they're, all of those criticisms have come from people that are, that are outside the field and in the substance of what their arguments are, that lack of subject specific understanding is really evident. And yet they're, t- it's like me deciding, God, psychology really uses a lot of qualitative research. I'm, that's nonsense, you know, and actually submitting a paper to publish based on my, my superficial knee-jerk reaction that their, their method of doing work in their field isn't what I like, basically. Uh, and it's been a bizarre conversation to watch play out. And, and in response, then, you've got people from within the field publishing well-constructed rebuttals to this. But the fact that that even has to take place gives an insight that I think to your point is, is potentially at play in, in the peer review process where you, you know, you, you've submitted a paper and, and you hope it's gone to people that have the relevant expertise to actually critique it and peer review it, but you, you don't have may, maybe confidence that that's the case. Yeah. And, and you know what? I actually think like, I think it's quite fascinating how you can sit there with a PhD thesis and be uh, examined by people who are, you know, experts in the field. And they can sit there face to face you and ask you questions. I actually, that's great. I think it's interesting how in a conference you can present a paper or a poster or a presentation mm-hmm. or a keynote and you can get all these questions or you can go on social media, but you can't actually yeah. sit down with your work in a written format after the experiment and take the bashing. It's, no. I, I don't understand yeah. that. I don't understand, it's, it's... I don't understand the logic behind it because I'm quite happy to sit. Like, I don't understand how I can get published, right? Or knock back, sit down, then with you know people and go and have my phd reviewed and get quite good remarks and go actually this was a great contribution but then have other people go you know that chapter was actually crap but i've no idea who that person was right right it's like like twitter you know it's like having a bad twitter literally yeah. yeah and so i wonder now that the kind of now that the movements for greater transparency in science and, and more open access and, you know, the, the reproducibility crisis. And as all of that kind of comes to the fore now, I wonder whether some of these old 
structures and, and ways of doing things may change somewhat or may adapt a little bit. So, you know, I get the, I get the idea behind an anonymous peer review, but perhaps what would be more constructive in the, in the long term would be some more uh, open um, back and forth in, in the manner of, you know, the, the, the way that you would, like you said, defend a PhD thesis or even field questions at a conference and that kind of mm. thing. And, and, and maybe there's maybe there's room to, to build that into the, the publication process so it's it's not as murky and anonymous in many respects yeah and i find yeah. it interesting as well as like in the sleep world for example like we often talk about to get back to your point about hierarchy of evidence like to go at standard for assessing sleep as polysomnography in a lab mm-hmm. and then you get like levels one two three four like that kind of as to descend to get less sort of i suppose uh to lose less sort of goldness <laughs> right but they're still pretty good and then you get into the sort of actigraphy realm and the wearables and then you get down to sort of self-reported stuff but it's really interesting like I'll, I'll submit a paper with polysomnography looking at the prevalence of sleep disorders for example in a group of people and it just get rejected straight away from a journal and we'll just say xyz sports journal somebody else will come around with self-reported data that fundamentally does not even the, the calculations yeah. that the, or the extraction of their data doesn't agree with sleep science or chronobiology. They uh, infer these crazy claims that stuff happens like cold water does this or, you know, yeah. a, a dietary supplement does this and it's all self-reported. Right. And then that they gets... use the Karolinska sleep scale. <laughs> yeah, and then it, gets, then it gets published and then gets promoted as like breakthrough science. You're like, really? Right, how, yeah. How, how, yeah. Do you not even, how do you not even have some internal, I don't know, criteria about the type of evidence you're going to publish and i, I know right. i get your point earlier on about like evidence can be different and so on but my god mm-hmm. don't reject a paper that's heavily based on scientific fact versus like right. objective paper don't even and you, but you, you see that with different paper. journals you know mm-hmm. like i i have and i know that a few people in the in nutrition have a bit of a bee in their bonnet with the bmj um the, the bmj published some good stuff in nutrition but wow do they publish some some awful stuff mm. and what they're particularly bad at is allowing editorials be published by by complete quacks and you're sitting there then wondering you know who's on the editorial board or the or the or the review boards uh that's that's either not seeing you know what well, uh, it makes you question whether there is because it's a medical journal sufficient subject specific knowledge in the in their in the pool of reviewers to, uh, you know, to look at, for example, you know, a, a nutrition paper or, or um, to consider perhaps the implications of some of the editorials that are, that are published. Um, you know, and, and you're just left face palming sometimes with some of the stuff that comes out because it's such a respected entity in the mm-hmm. publication world that anything that's published in it has veracity. Um, and because it's and the frustrating thing is the inconsistency because like i said you, you do get some really good papers that are published but you get some awful stuff um and it, it that that can be frustrating in and of itself um and, and you're again you're left wondering how did this actually make it <laughs> yeah. um it's yeah pretty, it's pretty interesting yeah yeah it is yeah yeah so look at that so, see there you go Alan. we did the classic irish we got into a big conversation about the history of stuff there already the history yeah. of science yeah. we got into the, the, the issues with yeah. what we could what we could do about how it needs to change we're a half yeah. an hour in and we haven't even spoken about your paper so anyway 
let's talk let's talk about your work this is classic this uh this is yeah, classic this is brilliant get a bunch uh, of irish lads together and just talk about shit make this up yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so you you kicked off your phd um and mm. you had this paper published um on the yeah, last tenth, month. Last month on the 10th of April on this open access. We will put the link in the show notes. This is open to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. I'm actually a fan of open access, to be honest, which I think it's really good. So am I. Uh, so I think... I, I really like that. Um, I think it's the only way to go. Yeah, I'm pushing more for open access in my own work because I think um, yeah. the more we can get work out there to the general masses, the better it's going to be. Yeah. So, 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 Alan, this paper here, do you want to give us a bit of a background on this paper and, and how it came about? Yes. So... Um, I, I had an opportunity to um, look at dietary intake in, in, in nurses. They were NHS nurses in the UK um, who had, in the context of a, a, the primary study, was looking at the impact of night shift work on a family unit from a sociological perspective. But 14-day diet diaries were completed, so it, it gave, gave me this nice data set to, to work with. Yeah. And... What I was interested in is when you when you look at a lot of the data and the, and the, and the published literature on on night shift work and eating habits and and energy intake, it's often presented as if it's static. So you'll say you know you, you'll see a paper that says well you know this is these are the time bins in which nurses ate and it's it's presented as a mean of three nights for example, but. I was looking at some of these publications thinking, well, what's, what's the story here in terms of the trend? Like this is taking three nights and, and putting it into a mean of energy intake. But what that's not telling us is how that might change from night to night. And the reason I became interested in that question was because most of the research on night shift work or in shift work generally suggests that night shift workers don't actually consume any more total daily energy than fixed day workers. Um, and so, you know, originally people thought that, well, if there is this increase in, in cardiometabolic risk over the long term from night shift work, obviously there are other factors involved in terms of, you know, sleep curtailment and, and all of these other kind of environmental factors that go into night shift work. But from a dietary perspective, I think there was a school of thought that was well, because they're up later, they simply consume more energy. Mm. And then you have mu- multiple studies that, that come out in different populations that actually show that in terms of total energy, they weren't consuming anymore. So when I, when I thought about that, the question that I had in my head was, well, if they don't consume any more total daily energy, what's their pattern of, of distribution and how does that change from night to night? So the specific hypothesis, rather than take the three nights that they'd worked or, or whatever nights that they'd worked and condense it into a mean and present it as, as something fixed, we thought that we would look at the pattern of redistribution from, from night to night in, in, these, in these night shift workers. And what was interesting was that, again, consistent with the wider fields and the wider literature, once we had kind of done the dietary analysis, it was clear that they didn't consume any more total energy. Um, they were serving as their own control. So we were comparing them to their, uh, we had 14 days of dietary uh, information for each nurse, 20 nurses in total. And the condition uh, for inclusion was that they worked a minimum of two nights. So we had, we had 12, works, 12 nurses that worked a minimum of two nights and eight that worked three in a row. Um, 
And so what we were able to do was compare the energy intake on their night shift days, on the, on the, on the days that they work night shifts, to their uh, rest days or their, their non-night days. And again, consistent with the wider literature, they, they consumed pretty much the same amount of total daily energy. But what we found was that uh, on the first night, on average, they consumed about 26% of their, of their total daily energy during the night shift, which was between, say, 9 p.m. and 7 a.m. Yeah. And then on night two, we saw this actual big, this big jump. So it went from about 26% up to about 35 36%. Um, and then for the nurses that worked three nights in a row, we, we saw that it, it, it wasn't as high as night two, but it was still higher than, than, the, than the first night. So we are seeing this dynamic pattern of, of redistributing energy as someone works night shift to night shift to night shift. Um, and, you know, and, and that, from a human behavioral perspective, you know, certainly in more line with, with what we might expect in terms of the hypothesis, because, you know, people aren't just going to eat the same fixed timing when their whole schedule is changing from, from you know, from dramatically. In, in fact, if you start from a day off into a series of night shifts, you know, your first night, uh, everything in terms of your eating patterns is very much aligned to that daytime. So what we tended to see was on that, the, the first night shift during that day, they tended to eat in terms of meal timing that was relatively consistent with their off days. But then they just had, you know, this, this energy intake during the night. Um, and then on night two, because they've only gone to bed at, say, eight or nine o'clock, and they've, they've, everything has been pushed back now on that second day. So they're they back on the second shift a little later in the day, but they've also redistributed much more energy to that actual phase between 9 p.m. and 7 a.m. on that night shift. So, um, so, so, and so we, 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 we think, yeah. Sorry, I was going to ask you, sorry, do you think that this is because, not just because of the, like, so I get what you're saying about going from like your days off to like a normal eating pattern then into the night shift, maybe have consumed a lot of your calories that day and then gradually you're moving or slightly adapting to more like an owl chronotype going to bed later, um, mm. you know, or moving into that kind of phase. Um, is this also an external factor about culture in, in these environments? And what I'm getting at is like, if you look at, let's say, mm. nurses, paramedics, firefighters, they generally will socialize around food on shift. And a lot of times, and we've done this ourselves in sleep labs, I've done it myself in the military. It's like, right, on our last night or on our last day, we'll order pizza. Mm. We'll order Chinese takeaway. We'll do something like that. Was, was there any of those factors present with the increase in the distribution of that 24 right. um, redistribution of energy into the night shift. Yeah. I, I would have liked to, to look at that because the primary study, like I said, was from a sociological perspective and very much had, was a mixed methods design, but in relation to dietary intake specifically, and in relation to their food intake on the night shift, we, we didn't have any qualitative data to work with. And I think that is, um, I think, it's a missing link in nutrition science generally. I think we really don't do enough qualitative research or even mixed methods research um, to, you know, because food intake, like you say, it's inherently behavioral. Um, so I can't, unfortunately, we, we don't have that data for that study in terms of speculating from some of the other research. 
I think there is definitely, um, we made this point in the discussion, our, our, our opinion was that based on this data, it was probably behavioral, certainly. And there's two reasons for that. One is that we know from the chronobiological uh, uh, research that two to three nights of working night shifts is disruptive, but is not sufficient in duration to actually cause an adaptation to that new sleep-wake schedule. Um, so it doesn't suggest a kind of circadian effect. And when you do look then at some of the other qualitative research in terms of nurses or uh, specifically nurses, and uh, because they're quite a focus group for this area and, and night shift work, there are clear uh, behavioral and environmental correlates of, of energy intake in terms of, you know, it just being comforting, um, the stress component, um, uh, the sociality component, if you're just taking a break and you're going to have a cup of tea and, you know, a biscuit or whatever, a couple of biscuits before, before getting back on the ward. Um, there was an interesting qualitative study in Australia that, if I remember, was in firefighters. And similarly, you know, the, these kind of qualitative themes came, came kind of through. Um, what was interesting in that study was that, that there was an expression of people being more aware now of, of, of the health implications, perhaps of kind of eating at night and trying to make better choices. Um, so I, I, I absolutely think that yes, these factors are, are driven by behavioral and environmental uh, factors rather than you know, a circadian adaptation to, to the night shift because it's too short a duration to, to have that actual kind of shift in your, in your, in your circadian rhythms to that to that night shift period yeah especially because it's only like you said but like less than three nights and and sort right. of that's and sort of uh where we may see a bigger shift or adaptation or well it depends what your view of adaptation is because we can never mm. really fully adapt to being night shift people but over time there is some i would call it semi or quasi adaptation but anyway mm. we see here like in australia for example in, in industries like mining oil and gas mm or even some of those papers like Firefighters that Grace Vincent has published in, uh, has done her thesis on, on Firefighters, or Charlotte Gupta is writing some papers on the same subject. We see people doing night shift for up to two weeks straight, and even a month in some cases. And that's 12-hour mm. night shifts going for a month, and that's where we see a lot of disruption circadian-wise. We see a lot of mm. poor diet uh, behavior occurring, either in the research mm. or in sort of the consulting work that I do. We see mm. a lot of these guys gaining a lot of weight, uh, mm -hmm. Lots of other sort of um, of issues being presented as well. Um, so maybe you know it's interesting to say less than two or three nights you're not going to see much. But what is interesting in in some of the data that you present is actually the number of eating occasions that occur at these kind of I would say vulnerable times. And your data highlights right. that really nicely, where it's like on the first night shift, you know, people kind of snacking in around around midnight. You know, and that kind of would probably might right. potentially would would break up the evening if they start at nine mm -hmm. o'clock. It's sort of two or three hours in kind of like having mm -hmm. a morning tea but then between three and four when we start heading into this circadian nadir circadian dip and um, we see on the first night like the number of eating occasions is quite low but on the second night they're having a lot more kind of probably yeah. snacking behavior to, to yeah that, that that 
peak in their eating occasions on the second night was was kind of much further into the biological night than the peak on the first night yeah. um which as you said was earlier and again that that, that might indicate just that, that behavioral aspect of you know on the first night they're they're still much more kind of just aligned to that daytime and they hadn't had they haven't yet had the disruption of staying up till seven or eight a.m and then trying to sleep and uh, you know as you'll know the sleep quality after a night like that is is crap anyway. Mm. So it's not like they're having a restorative sleep from eight till two p.m. from yeah. eight a.m. till two p.m. You know they're not. They're having a, a, a restless kind of um, relatively sleep, imp- yeah. disrupted sleep, yeah. and so that you know factors factors into it as well. So you're, you're inherently carrying more fatigue and, and a whole host of these additional factors that go into the the milieu that is night shift work in terms of health kind of risk and, and trying to manage that risk. Yeah. So Alan, the other thing as well is which, and I'm not a nutritionist or dietitian, but I, I was interested here looking at some of your stuff in the results. You spoke about mm. the breakdown here between carbohydrates, uh, protein yes. and um, fats. And fats. Yeah. So they're, they're generally like, you know, pro dietitians, nutritionists would, would look at in those, um, those three groups, mm-hmm. why are they important to look at in terms of this kind of chronic nutrition research? So there's, there's a couple of reasons and there, there, we, we, there was a couple of interesting aspects of them, of, of those results, although they weren't significant statistically, I think there were a few trends there that are, that, are, that warrant comment. Um, in terms of just why they're relevant from a circadian perspective, we know that there are, diurnal variations in in factors like glucose tolerance, for example. So that's probably one of the most well-established metabolic aspects of, of circadian biology is your ability to respond to carbohydrate intake and process it efficiently is enhanced in the early part of the day. Um, and it diminishes as the day goes on and it's particularly impaired in the biological night. Uh, similarly, our circulating levels of fatty acids tend to correspond to a degree with that variation in, 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 in glucose tolerance. So during the biological night, when again, we're not anticipating food intake, we have a circadian rhythm in circulating fats and circulating triglycerides and non, non uh, or what, what are known as free fatty acids that are just circulating in the blood. So if someone's consuming a, a high carbohydrate and high fat meal in the biological night, not only are they getting really impaired blood glucose responses to that, that are, you know, kind of elevated and, 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 and um, they have an impaired ability to actually process that blood glucose. They're also getting the same effect with their circulating uh, fats. So eating dietary fat during the biological night is, is having uh, quite a negative effect on circulating levels of, of, of fatty acids. And that has implications for cardiovascular disease and, uh, you know, and other cardiometabolic complications. And what's interesting in the trends in our study was that dietary fat decreased from night to night, um, carbohydrate somewhat increased. And, and that could just be because uh, there's a number of hypotheses we could we could go with here as to why that might be the case. One is that from a neurological perspective, the brain's primary fuel source is glucose, and it may just be that additional cost of, of uh, wakefulness 
um, is making people gravitate to carbohydrate. We know from some of the sleep curtailment research that there's a preference for high carbohydrate foods in a sleep deprived state. So maybe that's at play. But what I'm particularly interested in is the role of dietary protein and the potential for that to be possibly a beneficial uh, nutritional strategy for night shift workers. There was a paper published by the Monash Group back in March or February, which looked at the effects of a high protein meal as, as the dinner meal pre-shift during simulated night shift um, and found a benefit for, for glycemic control overall. So people's you know, overall blood glucose responses were better. I would be interested, there's a group in Holland, now this is more from the sports nutrition realm, but there's a group at Maastricht University who do a lot of research on um, dietary protein and, and, and muscle protein synthesis and these kind of responses. But they did a proof in concept study where they looked at amino acid digestion during the biological night and using a nasogastric feeding tube. Um, so what they found was that yeah, there I'd was love, complete I'd protein love, I'd digestion. Love to be a participant in that study. Right. <laughs> you down your nose. Looking, <laughs> you know, oh, thank, thank God for human volunteers. Um, so, yeah. But, but they, you're looking at that and you're thinking, okay, well, now granted they're, as, they're asleep, but you're looking at that and you're thinking, could there be the potential for kind of low carbon, low carbohydrate and low fat and, and high protein snacks during the biological night, as opposed to just in the dinner meal, perhaps providing less of a negative impact on, on blood glucose tolerance and, and on postprandial lipemia or on the, on the circulating levels of fat in the blood after a meal. And I think that would be a really interesting next step because it could provide finally, um, some additional nutrition strategies for night shift workers beyond just eat less <laughs> or don't eat or you know eat, eat, here's the eat well guide just eat it at night you know it's the, the night shift the nutrition advice for night shift workers currently i think is fairly um underwhelming in many respects if oh, you're a I, night shift I, worker i totally agree with you and it's one of the biggest yeah. things that i get i get asked when i go on you know, work with, with companies is, especially when I start, you know, doing, let's say group sessions or dealing with individuals who work rotating shift work, they always talk about the availability of food because a lot of times they're in more areas they are getting fed a bit like military. They always talk about food choices. They always talk about being tired. And mm. so, you know, it's this whole mix between alcohol, caffeine, food, what's yeah. the right food, what food should be provided and so on. But it's interesting because from the research and from sort of anecdotal feedback and, and my work with these companies, mm. obviously not being published, but more like a, in a consultancy sense, is that you're right between sort of three and seven o'clock in the morning. This this uh, carbohydrate, you know, thing is is quite high in terms of that that I suppose that drive for consuming preference. carbohydrate. Yeah. Preference was the word, yeah. yeah. And you mm. see that you see that a lot. Um, and obviously, um, you know, this is this is quite bad, like you said, because obviously it's not, you're not supposed to be having a type of yeah, food. You're just, that, you're just having yeah. impaired responses. Impaired, um, yeah. It's, yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's difficult to process. And it's comforting um, as well. And the other thing as well, I was talking to Charlotte Gupta the other day and that podcast will be probably out before this one. Um, and I spoke about from myself when I was doing long distance ultra running where, you know, I've been awake for 27 hours running. And wow. 
that when sort of when you hit like three or four o'clock in the morning, all you want is like cold potatoes with salt yeah. on them or, or even potato chips or crisps, whatever you want to call them. And yeah. it's, kind of, it's kind of twofold. It's like one is that you're kind of sick of eating, you know, sugar and lollies just, and, and yeah. junk throughout the day because it's hard to eat. And you get to a point where you're just like, I cannot eat one more energy gel. I cannot eat one mm. more piece of chocolate. I just can't mm. do it. And sort of, I remember, yeah. I remember being on this mountain on the side of Colorado. I was like four o'clock in the morning. This guy handed me this cup, and it was just like little cubes of potato cooked, cut up with salt on them. And I remember I had like about five of them, and it was like that was like the best meal ever. Like I would have, yeah. like, I would have paid like five hundred dollars for it. And it was just, you know, I just, and then some guy gave me M and M's after, and I was like, oh, I don't, I, oh no, yeah, like, yeah. So it's pretty interesting that you see this. Yeah, there's 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 also this thing. Um, known as sensory specific satiety, which, which happens in nutrition where, where literally if someone's eating the same foods as in the, the food with the same kind of sensory properties and stuff that you, that you get, you just hit this, this cognitive wall with it where you're just like, nah, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's why you can have like a dinner, but always have room for dessert because you're, you're switching up the, the sensory properties of, of, of the meal. Um, so, but yeah, I um I, I empathize with that. I, I and it wasn't obviously um a different context, but I climbed Mont Blanc in uh, twenty eleven um with uh, with a group of friends. I'm, I'm my dad and uh, it was a great two days. But when you're going for the summit on the first day, you climb up X amount, you get to this refuge, you go to bed at like eight o'clock, and you you wake up at about one, and you you strap on all the kind of crampons, and you make your push for the summit, and the goal is to get there anytime between seven and nine so you can make your descent and it was really funny because the, the day before I was just hammering in these kind of like uh, gels and uh, basically the powdered leucosate sport you know and I was yeah. just mixing up a big two liter bottle and so it was all very sweet and just basically pure carbohydrate and I remember like that, that during the climb at about 3 a.m you're still on the side of the mountain just plodding up and I just, the thought of, of something sweet at that point was revolting me. Like it yeah, was yeah, actually, yeah. and so all I ate, all I ate on the push to the summit, I had two bags of uh, mini Snickers bars and I was, that was it. I was just eating <laughs> Snickers bar after Snickers bar. But then by the time, by the time we were coming down, I couldn't eat a Snickers bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's funny what happens in those, yeah, when you're, you're a bit discombobulated on the side of a mansion at 3 a.m., you know, and you just you can't, have, can't have any more leucosides, so you're just going through the Snickers. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, like, you know, after being in the military for five years and being awake, you know, in, as an infantry soldier, you know, you just kind of, yeah, you just get sick of eating certain foods and, yeah, yeah. times of the day yeah. and being awake and being sleep deprived. And, you yeah. know, people often ask me, like, why would you go and do it then in an event like we are running and, you're paying for that. I'm like, because no one's shouting at you and you can stop at any time and you can have a shower when you want. Yeah. You know, it's over. So it's completely different. I said, you're doing a little gentleman. You know? yeah. Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, um, yeah. I applied for a race, went into the lottery for a race twice for um, Ultra Trail Mount Blanc, which is... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so that, it's 160. It's in June every year, isn't it? Uh, I thought it was July. Is it in June? Or August? Is this I the oh, July? Yeah, yeah, it could be. Could this be is anyway, the one where you, you run up that, um, that face... Uh, one of the particular faces, right? It's a, it's a essentially a sprint. Well, not sprint, but you're running up the mountain, right? As opposed to climbing. Well, yeah, it's 166 k's of a race. Yes. So it starts yeah. in Chamonix in, yes, in France, the and then it goes yeah. into 
basically you do three countries. So you go France, mm. Italy, Switzerland, or whichever way it goes, mm. and you do this big loop around Mont Blanc. Um, but it's such a popular race and so hard to get into. You have to go into a lottery and you got to qualify. But I never met it. Um, okay. Yeah, I think I've because heard I put it, down. Yeah. I think it's because I put down my nationality as being Irish, even though I was living in Australia. So yeah, had too many places. There wasn't enough places for Europeans. So I ended up. I ended up going to Colorado and doing a race in Colorado at altitude. So okay, yeah. But, um, but yeah, um, it looks amazing, Mount Blanc. So it's, ah, it's, um, it's definitely beautiful. on the list yeah. still to go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well worth it. Yeah. So, yeah. so Alan, um, as we as we like on this podcast, we digress again. Um, <laughs> coming back to your study, <laughs> coming back to your yeah. study, this all this info you gathered. Um, what was the kind of conclusion from from this data, and what would you recommend to people on night shift? So, I, I think in terms of the conclusions, like I said, the first was that we we were of the opinion that these changes are a reflection of the, the behavioral and environmental factors as opposed to anything inherently circadian. Um, the second was that it definitely gives an insight into the fact that, uh, you know, people's eating patterns on night shifts are not static and actually could potentially change. So, you know, there may be, and certainly in some of the, the simulated night shift work, there is, you know, a difference. Um, going back to that point you were making about when people ate, you know, if someone's, if someone's, having the kind of the main snack that they're going to eat during that night shift at midnight on night one, and then they're having it at 4 a.m. on night two, you know, that they are going to have quantitatively different responses to those, to those meals. Mm -hmm. So I think for, if I was speaking to night shift workers now, based on this study alone, what I, what I might be saying was to try and actually have more of a structure and maybe plan for that before the, the bout of night shift comes up. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I realize that there are these behavioral environmental factors that are going to lead people to eat during the night shift. So I think, although it can be tempting to say, oh, just don't eat, <laughs> you know, have a big dinner and go in, that's not feasible and that's not practical. So I think generally my advice would shift to try and have that, you know, I do think maybe having a big dinner that's high in protein uh, similar to what that Monash group published recently can be helpful um, because someone's just a bit more um, satiated going into the night shift. Yeah. But I think for, for snacks that are going to come on the night shift um, try and maybe have them earlier, you know, not, not, you know, you know midnight preferable to say 4am or 3am. Um, I would also try and have some sort of a structure so that you've pre-planned these snacks in advance and you, you know, you know, you're, that's, to the best that you can in terms of obviously appreciating nurses may have stuff they have to deal with at a moment in time, but trying to be relatively structured with, um, with that uh, approach to, to when uh, and what one is going to eat during that shift. And one thing that has struck with me from when I was analyzing any of the diet diaries is I remember one participant in particular, one nurse who it was so clear from her diet diary that there was a plan in place for, for night shifts. Um, the, 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 foods were, the timing of them was the same. It was just very, it was well-structured. And I remember thinking if I was to do night shifts, that's, you know, that's the way you would, you would want to do it is, is, is I think have a plan and have a structure so that you don't end up with this really ad hoc night yeah. to night random, kind of timing and, and distribution of energy intake, which 
you know, circadian rhythms are, are very much dependent on time cues. And the more consistent those time cues can be, even if they're coming at a time when, you know, we're not necessarily in an ideal scenario going to be giving ourselves these time cues, I think the consistency would be, would be better. And I think in a general sense, try and keep snacks during the, during the biological night or during a night shift to lower overall calories. Um, you know, there is going to be an energy component to this. And I think you're better off having a, a kind of filling 300 calorie snack than a, a 700 calorie dump of carbohydrate and fat into the system at, at one o'clock at night yeah. or three o'clock at night, you know? That's, that's an interesting point, Alan, you make, because this is, and this could be, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this actually about planning, because I think that may be true for people who don't do shift work. So for example, in business, some of the people who are the most unorganized that I know and the least productive are the ones who do not plan. They don't plan their weeks. They don't plan their days. They don't plan anything. They basically go to work every day and just react to email or just react. react, yeah. react, react, react. Yeah. react. In addition to that, a lot of people will often ask me, oh, you stay so fit and healthy. Your weight doesn't go up and down. How do you do it? I go, I, I basically I plan. <laughs> plan every week. So I said, like the week before I plan out, like this is what's going to happen for work if I have to travel or this is the exercise yeah. I'm going to do. I'm going to rotate my exercise between running and swimming and jujitsu and whatever I'm going to do. And then my wife and I will plan out sort of on a Saturday or Sunday, right, what's this week? Are you away? Are you here? What exercise are you doing? We're going to go here on this night. It takes like 10 minutes, right? Okay, we're going to clean on this day or, you know, oh, I can't do this. I've got to do something else. You move blocks around. And then we also plan out the meals and we shop to the mm. plan. So one, we save money on not like buying shit that we don't need really. Two, right, you, yeah. you buy, you get prepared for the week because we're both busy. And then you yeah. see, right, on, you know, Monday night, we're going to have, I don't know, like a halloumi salad and some bread. And then on Tuesday night, mm. we're going to have... Uh, vegetarian lasagna Wednesday night you're going to have like homemade fish and chips uh, Thursday night it's going to be I don't know uh, stir fry vegetables and chicken and a Friday night is always our takeaway night and we generally mm-hmm. get fish and chips my wife loves to have a fish and chips on a Friday night she grew up as an mm-hmm. Australian Catholic with some Irish guilt so she likes that right so <laughs> we get that and that's our kind of that's our night right. where we don't plan uh, Friday, Friday yeah. nights because we generally I, I will generally be traveling before this COVID stuff but it's like Friday night fish and chips we get some chocolate we get some you know uh, crap basically out of the shop we have our fish yeah. and chips we eat our crap we watch a movie we giggle we go to bed we get up the next morning I go get coffee maybe grab some cinnamon buns and that's the kind of end, that's the kind of guilt period yeah. right and then on Saturday yeah. evening it's back on the horse the odd time, maybe on a Sunday, we might be out for something. We might get pizza somewhere in an Italian restaurant or something like that. But we generally yeah. plan out the vast right. majority of the week. And that really helps yeah. me uh, keep my weight under control, so to speak. And the older I get, you see, it's harder to keep it down. But right. have that plan. But I, the, the, a lot of people who ask me about, about this, I'm like, well, what do you have for dinner most nights? Oh, I don't know, whatever I feel like. So how do you decide yeah. what you want? Or oh, when I'm driving right. home at five, I ring my wife or I ring my husband. And I say, yeah, yeah, hey, John. Yeah. Hey, hey, Susie, what do you want for dinner? Yeah. I don't know. What do you feel like? Oh, I'll just get a takeaway. So I end up then getting right. a takeaway four or five nights a week to your yeah. point about not being planned. So do you think yeah. the lack of planning on night shift causes, would say, weight issues as well for people or lack of energy on day shift Ooh. only or a day shift as well as night shift? Is it, is it something you yeah. see across the board? I, just, I, I, I think planning generally, like you said, in any context has an inherent benefit. Um, and especially 
if people aren't in the habit of planning the difference that that could make by starting to do it um i i think when it comes to something like like shift and when it comes to anything chronobiological i think routine is 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 relatively key yeah um and consistency is key and so i think with shift work it's not just and i think a lot of the research well, rightly is is focused on you know the shift itself but i think we have to remember there's like it's not just that two or three night shifts you know it's not like someone just wakes up the day after their last night shift and is back to normal is back on their normal schedule there's a carryover effect that we have to think about as well and, and how is that impacted and then you know what was interesting about our you know the, the overall data set was the the original thesis that um, the sociological research um, well, in, in terms of in the nurses included, you know, interviews with husbands and with the children. And, and what was interesting was the qualitative aspect of the nurses perspective of, you know, the shifts and, and how they would start to definitely think about it in advance of the night shifts, how, you know, they, they knew it was coming up and they would try. What I found really interesting um, was that because they were all female nurses with a partner and children, a lot of their planning, which was evident in the qualitative uh, sociological uh, paper, was in relation to the kids during the night shifts. So they were getting meals prepared to have in the freezer so that, you know, the, 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 the fella could toss in the, the, the frozen. The, the husbands did not come across as particularly useful in this circumstance. I have to say, they didn't, they didn't, do, they didn't do lads a, a good service. Um, but, but, but that was the thing. Their, their planning was, going, was not necessarily into themselves. They were thinking ahead. They were thinking ahead for the kids. Uh, and, and making sure that, you know, that there was dinners in the freezer that could be thrown in and stuff like that. And that really struck me. Um, so there's only so much of a cognitive load, I guess, that someone could spend. They were putting, they were putting others before themselves, yeah, yeah. put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was really interesting. So there's, there's a whole sociological, behavioral dynamic going on to shift work that I think you know, is, uh, is important to look at and, and, and tease these factors out because it's all well and good coming up with some dietary strategy, you know, but, but if it's useless in a real world context or if it doesn't take account of these behavioral factors, then it's just, it might as well be confined to paper. Fully agree. And it's somebody, it's the same advice I always give in, in if I'm doing practical research or when I'm working with clients, whatever it might be, I go, I could write you a great system. I could write you a great manual. You could put up on the shelf and you could polish that off when an auditor comes along or you could prove that you had these things in place. But if nobody's using that, it doesn't work. It's not worth the paper right. it's written on. So right. I'd rather get one good action in that's affecting positive change across your business or with your mm -hmm. team or in a research context, have one practical finding that can help a team and not worry about, you know, I think the paper or the, like the, the publication or the manual or the document afterwards is a reflection right. of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. you know? Yes, so obviously, And it can yeah. be used then to inform the change or support the change. Exactly. Forward, but, yeah. I think but it, but it isn't, right. it isn't it in and of itself. It's just a reflection of what we're trying to convey, you know, exactly. and then how do you and, use and, that information? And coming back to our point at the start of the podcast, I think that's where some academics get it wrong. The game becomes about the papers and the number of papers. Right. 
and the fancy titles in the journals as opposed to right. have you actually positively affected change you know right. with with people and that's the key for me it's like how can i use yeah. science how can i use my background how can i use my expertise education my energy to make a positive change and like one mm. of the good things i liked about you know uh, do my PhD in super rugby was like we we'd be in town the super rugby team you know one of the players would be in town and they come over like oh Ian how's it going and my wife is like oh th- th- those guys like you and oh, it's good because I've I've helped them in a number of different projects yeah. I've worked closely with them I've yeah. treated them with respect or even like the day I got out of hospital with this thing on my on my neck I was getting a coffee because I love my coffee and I, I said to my wife let's go by the coffee shop and uh, one of the players there from the Western Force was like coming over like, oh, I saw you got that done. I saw it on Facebook and hope you're going okay and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, like that's five years later, you know? Where you right, yeah. You with those people and you make that positive change. And, and yeah. you know, even the captain of the Western Force being on the podcast, Ian Pryor, and, you know, he's spoken about some of the things that they've kind of brought on into the team mm. from some of the work that we've done and coaches that we've worked with have brought that on onto other super rugby teams. And to me, that's like, that's the best compliment you can get from your work. Absolutely. It's not about Absolutely. the paper that's been published in the European Journal of Sports or another one in Journal of right. Sports Sciences. That's right. great for the academics, but for me, right. when the guys go, oh, that's stuff you said, or, you know, even with the podcast, people will stop me and go, oh, listen to your podcast last week with Alan Flanagan. That was really interesting about planning for mm. night shift. I might actually, might start doing that for night shift. I'm like, right. I'll message you then and go, Alan, yeah, we hit the mark. Yeah, yeah. got one positive yeah. change here, you know? Got one positive that's, change. That, yeah. That's why, I think that's why we should keep doing what we do. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that we can, yeah, it's, 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 it's something that I, I would share that kind of, um, I guess, criticism of, of, of the approach to doing science. I, I get that there is pressure to publish. I get that, you know, if people are looking for tenure, there are all these factors that are, there's a game that they may have to play. Um, but for me, some of the best scientists um, are are producing work that is 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 making you know a material difference to the way that that people not only think but maybe do uh, in in the real world. Yeah, I totally agree, and that's that's why we do this podcast is try to bring that good science to to everybody, and that's what we should be doing. We should be using it for yeah. for for good. That's why that's yes. why on Twitter I try to use Twitter for good, not for evil. I just follow a nice yeah. people. I, yeah. I block, that's block that's difficult. <laughs> it is, but you know what? It's really easy because I just unfollow. Uh, right, you know, yeah. So people, I love how people get outraged <laughs> on Twitter, and I say this lots of this podcast. I love how we get outraged. You can just click unfollow, right? Right. Like yeah. I only blocked yeah. one asshole, right? Only one mm. asshole I've blocked, right? And that's and I actually. I'm, I'm generally opposed, but I didn't even follow him, but he just kept annoying me. So I just, don't, I just blocked him. So I just, you know, another academic. So I just like, fuck you type of thing. But anyway. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, but if you don't like it, you just, you can just unfollow. Just unfollow. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> so Alan, what's next yeah. for you in terms of your PhD? What's the, what's the horizon? Like? What's so the we're, like? What other things do you we're, like? Yeah, so we're, we're um, kind of COVID-19 put uh, a shutdown on, we were tantalizingly close to getting the um, remaining um, plasma samples from the study that we ran last year analyzed. So that was a little frustrating because it would have meant that we could have put the lock- lockdown to good use in terms of analyzing it and yeah. maybe starting to write things up. But as it stands, um, there's a kind of in an immediate sense, finishing out the analysis from the study last year, which will be interesting. And then, I'm writing up an ethics application right now to what I want to look at is um, a big interest of mine is this kind of interaction between someone's chronotype 
um, and social jet lag. So, you know, we tend to think of chrono disruption as in these kind of extreme circumstances, like shift work. We're talking about shift work, for example, or, or jet lag. But if you look at the way that modern social timing is generally set up, whether that's the school start time or someone's work start time, and they maybe have to have a commute. And if they're, if they're a late chronotype, evening type or night owl, colloquially, you know, they're vulnerable to this disconnect between their internal biological timekeeping and their, their preference for time of day versus their social time that they have to comply with for, for work and, and, and other reasons. And there's suggestions from a nutrition perspective that late chronotypes are prone to distribute more energy later in the day, have worse diet quality and these kind of factors. So I want to look at observationally just at the start as a, as a pilot study, the relationship between chronotype social jet lag, the extent of someone's social jet lag, which you can calculate, and their meal patterning. So in the same principle of the way I looked at the nurse's energy intake for my MSE dissertation, I'm not interested just in the just in a quantification in a in a static sense. I want to look at the dynamic pattern of their meal yeah. uh, timing and how that might change. Uh, based on their free days when they can self-select their own timing yeah, yeah. versus their work days when their their timing is dictated to them so I'm, I'm interested in how that might change over a course of like a two-week period so so that's that's are you going to measure are you going to measure are you going to get a kind of a obviously people can self-report say a chronotype by questionnaires like the morning this evening's questionnaire the munich type chronotype so are you going to get them to wear actigraphy as well? So you can actually correlate Actig- that yeah. with it as well? Yeah, oh, cool. yeah. actigraphy. Because yeah. um, it a, a field study. Um, we're going to, yeah, the plan is to use actigraphy to just monitor, you know, and, and have some kind of indirect measure of, 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 of sleep, but more so, you know, to be able to look at their activity levels and their, how that changes again from work days to free days. Um, but yeah, the Munich chronotype questionnaire will be used as the kind of baseline screening tool to evening types because we, we certainly want to recruit enough of them into the study. And um, the Munich uh, can also be used to get a score for social jet lag as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we'll be using we'll be using Till Ronenberg's. <laughs> Uh, excellent contributions in terms of uh, chronotype assessment and social jet lag. So if you're interested in that type of work as well for, for yourself, Alan, or other guests as well, you should go back to a few episodes ago when I had Dr. Miriam Judo on um, okay. from, from Canada. She actually did her PhD mm-hmm. with Till Ronenberg. Um, right. She's from Luxembourg originally, but lives in Vancouver. And myself Great. and Miriam actually sit on the scientific advisory board of a, a technology company called fatigue science in vancouver so Brilliant. um so yeah you might want to check that out she's I'll take she, does, that, yeah. Yeah, she does a lot of good work on that on sort of uh yeah morning evenness chronotype social jet lag and also mm. um about why the clocks shouldn't really go back or forth so there's lots of interest right work there by yeah. on that so she's been working with uh, i think simon fraser university's got an adjunct position mm. there so she, that, her work would be definitely worth uh, checking out on that. I also another guy as well who I've met with a number of times. Um, he's done some work in caffeine, um, but he's also done some work. If you may have recalled a few years ago, people were talking about, oh, 
when you take people camping and away from all these electronic devices, sleep improves dramatically in teenagers. I remember that. Yeah. That's a guy called Ken Kenneth Wright. Um, Kenneth actually mm. was at Harvard originally, I think. Yeah. He's an American guy. He's in at the University of Colorado. Uh, he's also been doing some stuff on this around daylight savings and um, mm. you know the, the sunlight exposure and so on around the world. Yeah, he's he's published a lot about light generally, hasn't yeah. he? And light exposure and the impact of light exposure. And um, I find that particular aspect of of the chrono stuff fascinating particularly obviously in the context of artificial light and our, our modern you know i'm sitting here in front of a massive screen you know it's yeah. fine because it's 10 30 in the day and it's a blue sky outside but if it's 10 30 at night it's a different ball game yeah and then how does that change you know like you know from different location light exposure is that more mm. of the driver you know you were speaking mm. earlier on about you know behavioral external stuff or what we classically call mm. endogenous and exogenous so how are those things kind of do those things change? Because what's really interesting is, you know, is my dad was here a few months ago for the first time and his partner as well. So generally in Ireland, they'd be more like an old chronotype. You know, people in Ireland tend right. to go blare and go to bed later, I think anyway, in general. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when, I was, when I was home a few years ago, I got up at like seven o'clock or something. I'd been awake since half six and drove into yeah. to get coffee and there was not, nothing open. <laughs> no, my, no, dad, no. my dad came down the stairs at like half nine and he goes, where were you going in the middle of the night? I said, right. in the middle of the night. He goes, you were banging around in the middle of the night. I said, not me, man. I said, you must be driving. Uh, you were banging out. I heard a car going. I said, that, that was at five past seven. That's the middle of the night in this house, he said. <laughs> five past seven night. in the morning. And he said, Brilliant. I think I got up like six here, you know. And, yeah. and he goes, seven o'clock's the middle of the night here. Don't do it again. Yeah. And this is only a few years ago. But like, when he, when I think came, you're right. When he came here a few months ago, his partner really kind of became a, a lark. She was getting up really early and wanted to go yeah. to bed really early. And she was going, oh, I love it here. I actually feel more yeah. refreshed. I feel like I want to get up early and go to bed early. Whereas in Ireland, I'm always going to bed late and getting up late. I actually feel better. So you could see the difference in her. Yeah. And that's, I find that interesting because um, I agree. I think Irish people generally have, I think I remember looking at, at so was it maybe just a survey study, a European survey study, but it, um, suggested that that we had later average bedtimes than than other kind of populations in Europe um, but even my, my parents are exactly like that and also I remember I was down in Oz when it was March 2018 for a mate's wedding in Sydney um, and we went up to, to Brisbane then and Australia is lovely because it has this very constant like dark cycle there isn't this ex, there isn't this shift, sh- yeah. extreme shift that we get in, in Ireland where it's you know it's dark at four o'clock in December in January and then it's yeah, bright yeah. till eleven o'clock in the evening in June. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's that's interesting stuff. Yeah, but, it's, um, it's, it's interesting because I, I often get people like come up to me, you know, and and saying, "Oh, we went to Ireland last year on holiday and it was so nice. Why did you ever leave there? And it's such beautiful and so green and." We had some great days and it wasn't really that cold. I go, when did you go? June. I said, go in December. <laughs> go in <laughs> go December and come back here and tell me yeah. that I should, I should be living back there. I said, when it's dark at half three, it doesn't get bright till nine o'clock. The wind is blowing into your face horizontal. I said, and it's five degrees. So go on holidays then and then come back and speak to me because I don't want to hear about yeah. your two weeks in June. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you literally went at the best possible time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, God. So, Alan, yeah. if, um, if people want to follow you on the social media channels, if they want to get in contact with you, they want to discuss your research, maybe they want to fund you, maybe they want to give you money. Uh, how, <laughs> how, <laughs> how, how can they do that? 
Um, so social media channels, actually the only thing that I, I operate on is Instagram. Um, Twitter I steered clear of for mental health reasons. <laughs> um, but if they want to get in touch with me, so I have my own website is alineanutrition.com. That's um, a kind of uh, research-focused nutrition site. And I also uh, am the chief research officer at Sigma Nutrition, which is Danny Lennon's um, I think quite global reach now. So I have a lot of writing on the Sigma Nutrition website and people can contact me through there. Um, so yeah, they would be the two, two main ports of call. You mean we just spoke for an hour and a half and I didn't know you were with Danny. I didn't know that. No, really? Okay. I had no idea. Absolutely no yeah, idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah oh, I had yeah, no yeah, idea. So yeah. 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 So Danny yeah, was here that's... last year and we went for lunch yeah. here in Perth. Oh, great. Oh, all right. Yeah, so did you, did you yeah. know that I knew Danny? I think I remember you were on you were on the podcast before, weren't you? Were you yes, on I was Sigma on twice. Before? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's where that's where when you'd emailed me, I knew the your, the name ring, rung a bell um, from the Sigma podcast. Uh, but I didn't know that you'd actually met in person and, and yeah, yeah. And stuff. So yeah, yeah. I've uh, Danny. Danny was here, and you'll be. <laughs> this is so funny because you know who I was supposed to record a podcast with last night, and he deferred till tomorrow yeah. night. It'll be your yeah. old mental mate there from uh, Sigma Nutrition, the one and Kieran. only, the quarrels of life, <laughs> the, king of Cor- the king of Cork, oh, man the from king Stab of- City, the refugee yeah. himself, Kieran O'Reilly, <laughs> on here tomorrow night. Oh, that's great. You're going you're gonna to have some discourse. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I had him on before. We went for two and a half hours. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I, 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 would, I, would urge you, I, would, I would urge you to listen <laughs> to the first 20 minutes of our podcast because I actually replayed it the other day for my wife. And I was pissing myself laughing and my wife was rolling her eyes going, you guys right. should have a TV show. <laughs> like <Right. laughs> the first 20 minutes was, uh, he tells a story about uh, Miyamoto Musashi. So um, yeah, if you're hanging around with, with, uh, with those lads, I'll tell you, you're in, um, yeah. you're in some yeah. weird company. So that'll be good. Some company. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> The uh, the first the first time I met Kieran in was after one of the Sigma conferences last year. And it was the first time I met him in person. And uh, you know we're kind of ten minutes in, and the next minute he's talking about solar flares um, and how you know at any at any given time the solar flare can can wipe out the Earth. And it was just <laughs> it's was, it just the perfect introduction. You yeah. know? Like, I, I can't brilliant. tell whether he's, he's, uh, he's mental or a genius. I just don't know. I just, he oscillates yeah. from one to the other, but Danny was even telling me here, we were having lunch and Danny said, he will literally ring you at like half 11 or text you and go, Danny, are you up? And Danny be like, yeah, what's wrong? Like, and he'll ring him and he'll go, Danny, did you know in 1643, there was a surveyor in North America <laughs> looking yeah. at, some, like he just come up with this random thing. And then Danny said, he could be talking for two hours, like, Karen, I have to go out to bed, like stop. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty yeah. interesting I'll character. Just, I'll just keep you, that's oh, brilliant. Yeah. So he's, uh, he's, doing his P- he's doing his PhD now as well. So I'm going to have a chat to him tomorrow night about that. Yes, he is. Yeah, with, um, I think John Kiley is his, um, supervisor so that will be that will be an interesting interesting dialogue definitely yeah, you'll have to get yeah. karen to sign up for his phd he'll be or not karen uh, sorry danny he's the only one now that won't have a phd you have to get that's it yeah, we'll have to we'll have to force <laughs> him down the path <laughs> that's that's a great podcast guys for anybody's listening out there you're interested in nutrition there's there's no one better than danny out there at the moment no um you know, if you have an interest in nutrition, go and listen to Sigma Nutrition. He's got a great yeah. website, lots of free resources. The man gives away so much information. He's got some great people on there. He's had a number of uh, sleep people on there as well, if you're interested. Um, so Dr. Mita Singh has been on there recently talking about sleep and immunity. 
uh, myself and Nita and Michael Gradner did a webinar on sleep immunity, physical and mental health recently as well. That's on YouTube. Um, he's had Amy Bender on there from Calgary. Uh, he's had, had myself on there a couple of times. He's had a bunch of people on there about um, mm-hmm. circadian rhythm and, and the effect on nutrition. So, yeah, if you're looking for a good mm-hmm. podcast, guys, Sigma Nutrition is, is awesome. It's Check the way out. to go. Yeah, it's yeah, really good. Absolutely. Yeah. Alan, thank you very much for your time. We could, I think we could speak for hours, and I think we'll oh, definitely have you on again. To, uh, to, I'm really interested about your future work, uh, looking at the chronic. Yeah, well, I'll, and, I'll and keep you diet. posted. Uh, yeah, I'll keep you posted. And thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been a great chat. No, it's, uh, it's, it's excellent. So, yeah, thanks very much. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you.